0: Welcome to SpaceX, the podcast where we explore the holistic, human-centered, and experience-driven economy. In every episode, we're going to explore different aspects of the employee and human experience. Join me, Ben Witter, for regular updates, insights, and ideas that can help accelerate our development and growth within the experience economy.
1: People are expecting authenticity and truth in their in in the policies that companies have and not this duplicitous kind of reaction of black lives matter but we're gonna source our products from some country somewhere where there's slavery still or we're going to not pay equitably or we're not going to have really honor diversity inclusion and equity in our organization and those things will come up and when they do come up it's gonna it's a it's gonna be a rude day of reckoning because of how that news travels in a social media environment where it really doesn't take much for such that that kind of transgression to have huge impacts on our organization's life and, and livelihood <laughs>
0: Very good. Jolly good. Very good. Yes. Welcome to Space Hex. I'm joined by some old friends and colleagues, uh, Gary David and Adam Gamwell. And I appeared on the Experience by Design podcast um, very recently, actually. It was, it was when my my book first came out. And we had such a great conversation about employee experience and some of the deeper topics that are related with it that I thought we'd we'd bring the the team back together so we could have a really good um, in-depth discussion about some of these concepts in, in a bit more detail. So first of all, I'm going to hand over to to Gary and then Adam just to introduce themselves and explain uh, better than I can some of their background and, and their important research and work that they do.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's good to chat with you again. It was a great podcast and we got a lot of really good feedback on it. So uh, my name is Gary David. I'm a professor of sociology as well as information design and corporate communication at Bentley University, which is a private business school just outside of Boston. And among other things, among other topics I teach, I teach a course on ethnography for experience design, and I teach a course on employee experience in which I will be using a book by Ben Witter as a required text.
0: You, you can see I pick only the very best guests in That's the world. That's right. Good judgment. Good judgment.
2: That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, And hey, I'm, I'm Adam Gamble. Nice to see you again, Ben, as well. And, and Gary, always a pleasure to talk. Um, and so I am a design anthropologist. And I run a storytelling and design research consultancy called Missing Link Studios. Uh, and Gary and I also work together doing independent research projects with ethnography, our, our chosen field where we mix between sociology and anthropology, uh, doing human-centered research, focusing a lot on corporate communication, storytelling, messaging, communication strategy and things in that realm so super excited to be here and happy to dive in
1: his was a lot better than mine
2: nah, yours that was really too. good
1: no that was all right i didn't even mention my consultancy ethno analytics i totally forgot about it. i also do consulting work through ethno analytics as well as blog at ethno-analytics.com
0: all right that's enough plugs now <laughs> i am using your book so i mean come on yeah yeah fair enough yeah so yeah great to have you back guys and I suppose the first question is, you know, what are you making of everything that's going on in the world right now? I mean, there's there's probably a lot of things to consider. I mean, we have we're still dealing with the COVID nineteen outbreak, but also social movements so that are gaining pace and momentum around the world. So, it'd be just it'd be really interesting to understand your thoughts from your perspective on that. Well, everything in the
1: world. Yeah. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. there's always a lot going on in the world, especially around the social movement piece. I mean, both of us being Americans and both of us being social scientists, we've actually talked quite a bit about this to one another and -hmm. the kind of work I do teaching and consulting, it also corresponds. It's, it's one of those watershed movements that your children, my children, somebody's children will ask you about 30 years from now, what was it like? And Mm -hmm. so really, you know, it's, there's a difference between a moment and a movement. And we really are seeing this movement. A moment might be just protests after George Floyd was killed. The movement mm. is a sustained efforts across the world now, not just in the United States, but across the world to deal with the the systematic or systemic institutionalized discrimination, racism that certain people have experienced, as well as how do we as a society Reckon with our past and reconstitute our present to reconsider our future, and so we're seeing that happening right now in real time. And so it's a good time to be a social scientist, but usually that means there's a lot of turmoil going on, and it's going to be a ride to see how it's all going to, to uh, play out.
0: Hmm.
2: No, that's it's, it's a good point. It's kind of funny that um, you know we we might have. PhDs and be called doctors, but, you know, n- you know, an MD, a medical doctor is the real quote unquote doctor normally say, but that at this time, this is the point when you feel like a doctor too as a social scientist, because it really kind of is about diagnosing and, and understanding the what's happening in society. And we are at this, you know, this incredibly interesting and challenging and heart-wrenching and, and liberating moment in which, you know, we're seeing a- across the world, you know, with COVID-19 uh, and trying to figure out what it means to be healthy and survive as a human species, as we see governments, corporations, and different individuals like react differently and try to draw borders in places where viruses have no borders, uh, as, as well as more and more groups and people speaking out against racial injustice and social injustice and inequality that, that's been endemic in so much of society in, in just multiple different layers. And I mean, for me, one of the big pieces that's been interesting to see on, on a small, and a micro level of, of a conversational level with people is that uh, I'm seeing more conversations in which people are taking the time to listen to someone they may not normally listen to, uh, and and rather than just reacting or saying something right off the bat or just like let me tell you my, let me tell you my opinion right on top of that too, uh, they're actually taking moments to just consider what somebody else is saying, and that uh, to me has been a positive, you know. So maybe it's just me being the uh, a glass glass half full or something kind of person, but uh, it's a challenging time, but I, I don't know. We are seeing this this space opening up. You know, sometimes by force and sometimes by uh, just human compassion. That that there is more listening happening. Uh, at least I'm seeing on a micro level. So I don't know. There's something.
0: Yeah, and especially within what we we tend to focus on. I mean, looking at what we've been kind of representing within our careers so far, it tends to be more human centered, experience driven. You know, listening, having empathy for people but is that really what's happening because within organizations there's been you know a mixture of responses sometimes um sometimes it's responding for the wrong reasons completely you know the they they feel they have to play a part in this movement or they'll be judged very harshly but do businesses really mean this now is it are we seeing a, a watershed moment here
1: yeah, I think it's hard to say, and it's got to really be on a case-by-case basis to make that determination. We were chatting about before we started recording this concept of of blank washing, so rainbow washing, during the month of May when it's you know gay pride month. Companies who may contribute to politician or political campaigns or causes that are anti-LGBTQ in terms of what those policies are going to the impact are going to have, might have rainbow colored packaging or might come out with an Instagram picture or a tweet or something, right? Which really is not, um, I'll say authentic, which is really not sincere. And the the, the thing about right now is we live in a social media environment where if you're not sincere, if you're not honest and authentic, you're gonna be found out. And that's gonna potentially come back and hurt your organization even more. So Mm. people are expecting authenticity and truth in their in in the policies that companies have and not this duplicitous kind of reaction of black lives matter but we're going to source our products from some country somewhere where there's slavery still or we're going to not pay equitably or we're not going to really honor diversity inclusion and equity in our organization and those things will come up and when they do come up it's gonna it's a it's gonna be a rude day of reckoning because of how that news travels in a social media environment where it really doesn't take much for such that that kind of transgression to have huge impacts on an organization's life and, and livelihood.
2: Well, and it's, it's really interesting about that, too, because what we are seeing in, in the case of this sort of, you know, blankwashing scenario is that organizations will do something on social media, right? They will put a, a black square to represent Black Lives Matter in uh, their support of it as an organization and it's interesting that like social media becomes the channel in which they then try to again socialize or put out their information for a wider public, i.e., their consumers, maybe maybe society in a larger sense. But then, uh, Gary, you're making that you're a great point there that when it comes to the back end, quote unquote, like where we might think about the the employee experience or the policies, what are their hiring policies? What are their uh, salary? You know, if, are there salary differentials, for example? You know, in in our Women being paid less than men, for example, and are there things like salary transparency in part of that process, right? And are there policies that that demand or require salary equitable, you know, equitable salaries for for experience, not based on gender or, or sex, for example? And so, that's a really interesting and challenging point that, you know, companies will use social media to sort of promote their social agendas, but. Right. If it's not authentic, i.e. there's nothing to back it up in terms of that they don't have hiring policies that make sure they are having more equitable hiring practices uh, by hiring people of color uh, or hiring people based on experiences. Um, you know, what does this mean in terms of, you know, is their leadership all one race? Is it all one gender, for example? Are there policies to try to help somewhat control for that or what are their decision making mechanisms as well as, is you know, Who's on the board, et cetera? And so there is this interesting piece of like you want to have a certain face on social media, but then right, you can be very quickly found out when someone says, Well, like, tell me about your hiring practices. What are those? Um, and you know, in the US too, I'm kind of curious about this in the UK, Ben. Um, in other places you may have worked around the world too. You know, in the United States, there there are anti-discriminatory practices of hiring that you can't actually, you know, disqualify somebody based on race, sex, gender. Um, and it's interesting because like, how might that does that work in similar places you see around uh, other organizations in the world. And is this, you know, are there other kind of policies, I guess we might think about that we see organizations doing that, that we would consider to be best practices uh, for today that would be practices that kind of help us move past this idea of let me just show you my, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter social media campaign and that's it. We're not having any practices behind that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, you, go, you look at the, the different approaches across different cultures and contexts and you know what happens in China and Japan and, and various other places you know, sometimes it can be very very different because of the way you know society has been built or designed or you know led for for a long period long periods of time and then you have global organizations operating in those particular environments and what I find tends to happen is that there's a real Um, co-creation of values that the brands can genuinely believe in across all these different cultures and contexts so it's kind of like the the truth uh, as i as i've mentioned which becomes that unifying force so all of a sudden you've got an, an organization taking values very very seriously whether it's in san francisco shanghai or singapore wherever it may be to say this is the way we do things and our policies and practices are going to reflect that regardless of uh, the territory we're working and operating in so i think when we're talking about truth i think you know leaning into values and making sure that they're reflected within your policies practices and procedures i think that offers a very good start because you know if you're talking about openness and inclusivity as, as core values but then you go to a territory where that's coming coming up against some friction you know the best companies or the best human centered companies are going to try and fix that or be uh, proactive around that I mean, I'd be interested in this. What's, what's the research that you've had, had a look at over the years or been involved in, Gary, around sociology? You know, how does this kind of influence what we're seeing today and, and what can we learn from that? You know, this idea, part
1: of my background, my dissertation work, was in intercultural communication uh, in workplaces, actually. And so I was looking at, in Detroit, where I'm from, Detroit, Michigan, the, the interactions between Arab liquor store owners primarily from Iraq and customers who are primarily African-American and trying to really understand what was the nature of the interactions at the time. This was just after Rodney King verdict in the 1990s. And there was all this stuff around, you know, immigrant entrepreneurship. And so what we had is a situation where people from different quote unquote cultures, nation states were coming together and interacting. And one of the things that became really interesting to me as a sociologist was not how how much problems existed, how many problems erupted, but how people were able to get along across these supposed differences. And by and large, they were able to get along in these often brief encounters, like literally seconds, but repeated many times during the week. They were able to get along just through personalization of themselves and their lives. And so they get to know, you know, it's trite to say, but they get to know each other. They would get to then through knowing each other, find areas of commonality and it's what mm-hmm. i call the pronoun progression moving from us and them to you and i to we mm-hmm. and so you know around the values and around practices with got culture right as values and practices and symbols and meaning and things like that it's finding those spaces in which we can share right what we have in common because there's always things in common that we can find but at the same time, not necessarily maintaining a culturally, what we call a culturally relativistic stance. You know, if I, if I believe that black lives matter, which I do, if I believe that people who are LGBTQ should have equal opportunity in organizations should be fired for their sexual orientation, which I do. But I'm doing business with a vendor or I, I have a, a, an office in part of the world that doesn't hold those values. Well, I, I'm not going to sit there and say, you know, that's their culture. I have to respect it because, you know, we can think about which the cultural values, practices, beliefs matter to us. And then also, you know, for those groups that seem really different than who we are, for those who identify and focus on difference, really creating opportunities to find that commonality. And it's when you find that it's when you humanize and that's why dehumanization is such a fundamental part of, you know, pogroms or, you know, or genocides through humanization, we find commonality and through that commonality, we can find connection. And those are the, the sociological steps and anthropological steps to creating that kind of larger environment that organizations really need to tackle, not focusing on difference, focusing on commonality, creating the opportunity to find that and having a firm set of values and values and, and, and vision for those values that is communicated across the organization.
0: Humanizing organization and, and communities. Yeah, this I think sounds so,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: This sounds easy, this sounds easy. if you go
1: to my website now, no. I'm
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 you know what, it's
1: not, it's funny. It's not easy, but it's not unknown either, right? It's not mm. as if we don't know how these things work. We do know how these things work. Often when, and you know this, Ben, and, and Adam knows this too, organizations don't do these things because they don't choose to do these things because that causes them to call into question the way they've always done things. And that's a choice. And so for organizations that want to do these things, they can be done, but you have to want to do them and not just post things on Twitter and your website and put in your mission statement. you got to want to do them.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, ideally too, not having to just want to do them in a reactionary sense of like, oh, it's time to do this now. Right. <laughs> 2020. Uh, but you know, have that, have it be part of the fabric of your organization, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, to tag onto that, to, to kind of some of the ideas that Gary was pulling out there, um, a bit of my research for, for PhD uh, dissertation was working in Southern Peru with, with quinoa farmers, uh, and scientists and agricultural workers, organizations, um, non-governmental organizations and government branches. And uh, the kind of phenomenon I was looking at with all this was what we call cultural brokerage or cultural brokers. And these are individuals that kind of sit and in between different cultural groups. And so this case, it would be indigenous farmers that uh, speak Quechua or Aymara, indigenous languages in, in the Andes uh, and some Spanish, as well as agricultural scientists who themselves might be indigenous, but then have gone on to college um, and speak Spanish and uh, speak a scientific language, as it were, right? They can talk about plant biology and genetics. And uh, we have NGOs that come from an international context that are concerned about conservation and agrobiodiversity and making sure that we have crop variety for the future to fight climate change. And what's interesting working with these these different groups is, again, how this communication between them would happen and how these there are certain people that would act as these brokers that could kind of speak both, quote, science and, and indigenous ideas, and I'm, I'm not making these mutually exclusive, but just for the, the sake of, of thinking about how they might operate. And the idea was what was really kind of interesting to see is that a lot of ideas would end up overlapping, but people would just have different words for them. They would have different concepts of what they were talking about, but some of the goals were the same. Uh, some of the practices were exactly the same. Uh, some of the explanations were the same, too. It just turns out they may just be using different nouns or different ways of kind of getting at similar conclusions. But it's fundamental to have these kinds of people that were willing to work in these interstitial spaces uh, where they, they're not quite here and they're not quite there, but they kind of operate in between them. And, you know, that's something I see that we that is happening kind of today, too, across so many places of the world, That especially a lot of people are connected online, on the internet. We can hop on social media, right? We can see what's happening in Shanghai. We can see what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, you know, when the Arab Spring was happening um, a few years ago that I'm remembering, too, and just watching how that was happening live on Twitter, uh, and that opened a lot of Western eyes or Westerners eyes to uh, how political protest was happening there. And that it was actually, it looked very similar to what a lot of people were doing in, in the United States and in the UK. And it's kind of seeing how it happened in the West. And that was a very interesting moment in which there was this connection that people didn't realize that we actually shared, right? In this case, technology enabled that to happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, so to kind of wrap this forward in, in the idea of, of what this might mean for organizations too, it is, important to understand that all of us come with certain cultural backgrounds and baggage and ideas and ideals and motivations that are that are shaped by where we come from in, in our upbringing, of course, and in the world that we're in, in the context that we are in today. Uh, but then, you know, what are these moments? It's kind of a moment to pause and reflect of, of individuals, employees at an organization or the organization itself? Like what role might brokerage play in this case or cultural brokerage? Who are those people, those actors, uh, the, the, the folks that would be willing to kind of talk between worlds, as it were, to bring those connections, to bridge, to bridge those connections. And to, I mean, just one other piece that this made me think of too, Ben, when you mentioned that we often work in the human-centered environment, that the idea of empathy, right, that we see come out of design thinking is, is like the one of the, the primary steps is to understand uh, the feelings, the perceptions, what it, what it is you know, like as best as one can, to be the people that you're designing for. And it's funny with this too, like that's also incredibly natural. I mean, humans, empathy is one thing that we do normally, right? But it had to be sort of brought into an organizational context and design thinking is is one of the ways that 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 kind of kind of found its way in a side door. And now it's fundamental to so many organizations, you know, and uh, that's, it's really kind of cool because that to me was a piece of brokerage. If you think about that, was kind of a form of cultural brokerage, you know, sneaking in the idea of empathy that's something that we do normally as humans is something that we always do right we can smile at someone and, and we understand instinctively uh, a little bit of what that means and so you, yeah good
0: see I, I think that's that is it's a wonderful way of, of viewing the world and architecting a an ecosystem or a, a way of understanding or helping people understand things at a deeper level you know to create connection. And I'm thinking, how good our organizations are organizations at doing this? because reflecting on what you just said, I'm thinking they're not very good at doing this,
1: right? Yeah, no, I mean it's this is a this is an issue, and you know we can look at why. So you know employee resource groups, you know, as a way of possibly um, creating opportunities for people to come together. Around a shared interest. One of the things that I recommended for this one organization I was doing research on, they had teams across the world, but primarily in India, Ireland, and the United States. And rather than focusing on how to do business with India, and I attended this training and you know it was borderline racist, right? Talking about how Indians, you know, don't have no concept of time and don't know how to say no, wow. hmm. right? Jeez. The, for, the yeah. first thing I did when I went to India, okay, true story, right? So I'm coming to India as a sociologist. I attended this training. Indians can't say no. So I come to the, meet all the managers of this IT company, right? Sitting there, all the managers are standing there. I said, one of the first things I'd like to ask you to do is if you could, you know, pass this around, this this basket around and put all your money into it um, and give it back and give, it, give me all your money. And they just kind of looked at me and said, no. I said, oh, so you can <laughs> say no. So, okay, let's talk about what it is that, that where this comes from, Right. And so mm. I recommended that, you know, rather than focusing on the differences that weren't even that true, you know, what do they care about as people? You know, the, the male workers in India care about cricket. And I actually learned a lot about cricket in the process. Can you have them teach the American workers what cricket is like? Can you have the American workers teach Indian workers about baseball or football? Uh, well, it was interesting that when I would see people sitting and chatting together, I saw it was in the lunchroom, always look at the lunchroom, right? You want to know where people's relationships are? Look at the lunchroom. The women were talking to one another across nationalities. And I asked one of them later, well, what were you all talking about? And she's like, well, I'm getting married. Indian woman said, I'm getting married. So we're talking about my wedding. I can't imagine guys talking about a wedding. When Usually <laughs> when guys are getting married, they're like, oh, sorry to hear that, man. So she finally made you, you know, tie the knot. That sucks. Those are the kinds of things that men often say about getting married. Women, that's a topic. So it's about finding those topics, those identity pieces, those points of connection and how can organizations facilitate that, whether through, you know, ERGs or whether it be through uh, cross-functional teams or whether it be through other kinds of measures that or, or methods where you can just make it happen and make it possible?
0: Yeah, and, and that's, I think, where the opportunity is, you know, where, where you can really focus in on those things that facilitate that, you know, quicker than that it usually takes place if you just left it to kind of a normal timeline. I remember working in China and one of the companies that's growing you know, just at a phenomenal pace is Tencent, uh, owner of uh, the app WeChat, uh, the creator of that. Right. It's got one billion plus users now. And they have two skyscrapers and the architect suggested that we create sky bridges between these two skyscrapers and put all the social and community activities and experiences in these bridges so that we can get the two buildings to connect and casually connect and and collaborate and create with each other in a way that's you know indirect and based on things that are outside of the normal boundaries and and the normal authority levels and that that's just an example of you know we can do this if we were creative and we think differently is what you and uh, adam have said in terms of you know, we have to play a role within this, in society and within our organizations. Otherwise, if you leave it to chance, it may not happen. See, one yeah. of the
1: things, and I'll let Adam talk, but I always thought organizations should have a CRO, a chief relationship officer. You That's know, we might manager, call it a chief, yeah. Yeah, a chief experience officer, chief relationship officer. To really, you know, a sociologist preferably, or anthropologist with a PhD <laughs> would be good. <laughs> you know, call me if you're interested. No. You know, this idea of you know, trying to make sure that these things are happening and also understanding the org culture. I I don't think that it should just be left to HR, right? I think Mm -hmm. it needs to be a strategic area. It needs to be C-level, not just, oh yeah, amongst everything else, make sure human resources does it. Because that puts a big burden on what they're already doing. I mean, unless HR has been elevated to that C-suite strategic level of of connection with everyone else in the C-level. But this is where, again, organizations have to make a choice. And I love that SkyBridge example. It's just, you know, yes, thinking big, thinking bold, because the benefits are, are going to be important to organizational vitality and growth.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it is fundamental that, that leadership play a, a role in this, right? Um, I, I don't agree that, you know, I was, I was reading, for example, I was reading a, a report on company culture the other, the other day, and which I won't name. And um, I, I did. I write it. You did not write it. This. So okay. okay. Good. Because <laughs> you wouldn't say this. But um, some of the recommendations that came out of this report, um, they, they they did they basically did interviews with a number of of uh, C suite um, members, and you know they one of the things they pointed out was that you you need to be careful because you know you can't just let culture happen, uh, you know, or the, or that culture is fragile in that it can it can sort of fall apart and. I think this is such an interesting and, and tricky idea because, you know, on one level it it makes it sound like it's this thing that you're gonna lose if you don't do it. But the reality is culture happens anyway. Culture happens no matter what. And it's it's more just about do you take responsibility and an active role in the kind of culture that you want to shape, right? Right. And this model is this idea that that again from this this report, the model is that, you know, bad culture will happen if you don't do something good. And that's also kind of, I mean, this is the Game of Thrones model too, where like the world's a horrible place unless you actually, <laughs> you know, fight against it. And, and like, you think about it, like, this is, the, the, that was actually the metaphor that was in my head was the Game of Thrones because it's this cultural mythos that like the world is evil in essence. And that we, if we don't fight against it to be good, it will just fall back to being bad. But the other side of like a, a different way of looking at this is actually that, you know, culture happens anyway, and we have to make these choices, right? This is about the choices that we, we that we make. And what does as we as leaders, if you're in the C-suite, what role do you choose to take in your organization in terms of determining the kind of culture? You know, you as a leader, people will instinctively look up to you because you're in the C-suite if you're if you work at the organization. And so, you know, what actions you take, what policies you promote, how you even talk to your employees and, and what kind of quote unquote culture do you have of can I, you know, is as you have an open door policy, can I can I reach out if I have a problem, if I'm an employee, for example? And it, it, it's all of this is about setting that that culture, you know. So I, I 100% agree with you, Gary, that this is about uh, in in organizations that are that are certainly of this size that we're talking about, like Tencent. Like it's, it, leadership has to be responsible and take responsibility for this. And 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 so one level, like saying that HR, you know, you can't leave it to HR. I also agree too, because a lot of, I mean, HR is, you know, as I think we talked about in our podcast too that HR gets kind of a tricky, bad rap because they end up being a lot of compliance. You know, it, it right. becomes less about actually cultural management and cultural promotion. And it's more about making sure that it's actually sort of, you know, organizational resources, right? Making sure the organization doesn't do anything that will get it in trouble. Um, And that's not exactly, you know, what it's about. And the idea of humans as resources too, I think we talked about was also its own problematic framing and idea, you know? So um, yeah, I think we need a CRO too. (laughs) That's all I have to say. I agree.
0: Well, this is interesting because I I don't think naturally we're we're kind of looking at HR to do this. I've got to say, I, I mean, speaking to different colleagues and companies around the world, I mean, th- there's actually a shift starting to take place around, You know, is this what we're talking about here um, going to be located in HR or is HR going to be playing a significant role? When where yeah. you need to place the emphasis is right at that C-suite level. Mm-hmm. And if, if they're not there or if they're, if they're roped in because they feel like they, they, you know, you have to have HR on on a management team. Um, I think that that could be an interesting challenge to solve because even if they get to the top table, which has always been the constant debate within the HR profession, it's the influence they have when they get there that's all all important. So, if you had a chief experience officer or or someone with that executive clout, if you like, running this and sponsoring this, then I think it's a different ball game. Because you have to leave this from the top.
1: Yeah, I I think also in looking at culture, right? Ideology is seen on top of culture, so to speak, as this like Mm -hmm. governing principle of who we are, what we believe in and what we do. This goes back to organizational vision. So if you approach your organizational culture as Leviathan, yeah, you're going to have HR have all these controls put in place and these rules and this absolute sovereign who sits atop and dictates everything else that goes on. Because without that sovereign and in absence of any agreed upon direction and vision, what you know people are going to do, whatever they're going to do. But if you have a culture in your organization that is predicated on why we're all here, and it's something that we all share, Adam and I have been playing with this concept of community oriented design, right? Who mm-hmm. we are as a people, as a community. Mm-hmm. If you have that, like an organization like a Patagonia, then you don't need these tight controls because you can rely on your people to do the next right thing because that's what they know they're about and that's why they're there and that's what they believe in. And so in absence of this vision, sure, you're going to have problems potentially because people are going to be doing what they do and what they want to do. But with, you have that vision, you don't need that same kind of centralized leadership because people have bought in and you're, then then your job is not to manage, it's to facilitate. It's to enable them to turn their talents and their passions into products and designs that further the not just mission statement, but the value statement, the mm-hmm. the passion of the organization.
2: There is something super important about the idea of the purpose and value driven work, right? And that's something that we've seen trending anyway as being, being, being increasingly important for employees of organizations. Uh, is is having a sense of value and, and purpose and shared value, right, in their work? And I, I you know, I, I think that is one of the mechanisms, if not the mechanism, I suppose that uh, you know organizations can begin to employ if they're not doing it already is how do we take the time to articulate our own values? And then also kind of, as you said, Ben, I love the idea of co-creating those values. And what does that look like um, within an organization and having leadership in in C-Suite sponsor that? uh, You know, it, it, I mean, it might need to like start at the top in terms of saying that you have either, you know, you're allowed to do it or sponsorship to do it, or you're encouraged to do it, or there's funding to do it or whatever it is, having the resources to do so. But then on top of that, then I think Gary, what you're saying is like that That next step that's totally right is that people then become that, right? Th- those right. are their values too, right? And uh, then it's, it isn't about, yeah, or, you know, this is going to quote fall apart or that, that the culture is going to devolve into some, you know, evil Game of Thrones thing. It's that we actually like own these values. Like these are part of us, you know, that, that's yeah. fundamental, I think.
1: I think one of the challenges people get scared about this is it's like asking a hundred people where they want to go for dinner, <laughs> right? You're never going to, everyone's going to starve because you're never going to get out the door. So there has to be some leadership matters. It's not just, you know, we all decide on who we want to be and we all come up with this agreement and it's great. Yay. Yeah. In small scale organizations, that might be possible, but in larger scale ones, you're going to have a challenge there. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, it's the leader's vision can matter, obviously, when that vision is connected with a purpose in which people can buy into and profit as a purpose, as the sole purpose is often not the thing that's going to drive people's commitment, it becomes more transactional, and it doesn't become value-based in the same kind of way.
0: Yeah, I think people forget that sometimes when talking about culture and all these different things that are kind of labelled around this work. In that, you know, co-creation takes place inside and outside of the business, so it's not just about working with employees and coming up with something they're happy with and you know they support that often doesn't matter too much because if the consumers and the customers don't like it then you're not going to have a business for much longer <laughs> yeah uh and it's the same you know in in the same way that you know shareholders if we're not co-creating with shareholders in a way that, that you know creates an investable service and product and organization then again it's going to be tricky as you kind of move down the line there so i find this whole thing fascinating around you know the right. core creation because you know, if you speak to someone who's worked in telecommunications or employee engagement or HR or marketing or from a general management unit, they have a very different interpretation of what core creation is and how it gets done in practice. Any, any thoughts on that one? One of the things that you made me think about, I just watched this movie, oddly enough. I don't
1: know, Ben, when you were growing up, did you ever look at Muscle and Fitness magazine?
0: Uh, I can't say I did, no. no okay, <laughs> I well, was more a rugby league Adam, kind of guy. Well, there you go. Adam,
2: Muscle and Fitness? I I did not. Sorry.
1: Okay. So I'm the, I guess, you know, it's, I'm older (laughs) than the rest of you. So this is what we did, right? We look at muscle and fitness. Joe Weider um, founded with his brother, muscle and fitness magazine. I was watching a a docudrama, basically a a fictionalized account of his life. He was the first magazine that had an African-American bodybuilder on the cover in the 1950s.
0: Hmm,
1: So I say that because if he was reacting to his customers, he never would have done that. He was also a Jewish man from Montreal who experienced anti-Semitism and experienced his own issues with, you know, his, his culture and feeling ostracized in many ways. But he was a value thing that he saw. He couldn't, you know, health and fitness as an industry didn't exist then, but it was a thing that he saw and he believed in. And so he drove it. So I totally agree that customer experience and being customer centric matters. But at the same time being customer centric in a, in a, a moment of cultural change in which what the customers want isn't in keeping with where society should be going that can actually be part of this regress of keeping culture from changing and so this is where you know it becomes tricky business where this is what our customers want but our values say this is what our customers should be asking for and this is what our society needs and so there's that balancing act there, I think, is important to consider as well.
0: That That is fascinating because that's going into really deep territory around the role of organizations within society and all these different stakeholders. Because, again, if you're looking from the internal lens, um, particularly in my world, employee experience and HR, you're looking at employees. You start with them, you co-create with them, you design great experiences, and they pass that on to the customer. They create the value. They deliver the, the great customer experiences. But actually, if you're doing one or the other and not a mixture of all all of those different components and constituent parts, you know you can weaken your brand and, and company as a result. I find the whole thing fascinating. So, co-creating with your CEO is co-creation. It's not going to a CEO meeting and saying, "Oh, we've done a policy, he, uh, let's get your feedback, and, and then let's launch it." It's actually deep co-creation around you know what are the values being set right at the top of the organization. What mm. are they going to role model consistently right. and ruthlessly, I've got to say, you know, you look at some of the best performing companies, they are absolutely ruthless in sticking to values, you know, mm. from day one to days, um, you know, to the day they leave the company, you know, absolutely ruthless around values and consistency around them. Um, so I find, yeah, this is a really interesting area, you know, core creation. Where does it start? Who does it start with? Where does it stop? Uh, My particular view is, you know, we have to co-create with all stakeholders, um, particularly employees, you know, in a kind of human-centered way. Um, Mm. But if you just do that, you know, there's a risk that you're leaving out, you know, key intelligence, analytics and data from from the people you're trying to serve in the first place, particularly around communities. I mean, I've seen companies that are dropping uh, from the fur trade certification now and doing their own thing completely. So, again, moving towards uh, self-regulation. Uh, mm-hmm. Around their own ethics. Um, so again, is that is that going to be a trend that continues? That, so we're going to self-govern and self-regulate our own ethical um, frameworks and practices uh, because we don't particularly want to be, you know, assigning ourselves or recognizing ourselves against the global benchmark.
2: Hmm. Well, that, that's 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 fascinating. Uh, this reminds me of a conversation that Gary and I had on another podcast with Darrell Coleman, who runs DC Design. And he does. It's it's a social innovation and social design firm, and one of the one of the topics that we came up with, uh, talking with him. He basically he, he's done does like sort of redesign work um, with the criminal justice system, with with you know childhood education access, uh, and you know, a lot of government agencies and as, as well as businesses and organizations. And you know, one of the pieces that we came away with that because we we did talk about this this idea of co creation also, but but what happens and how do you think about this when the constituencies don't like each other? Right, and so sometimes there can be oppositional, you know, relationships or feelings, and that's an important part. Just to, you know, that, that I can't away from that conversation. Thinking about that, co-creation is is fundamentally important, right? For I think having a healthy organization and for enacting change because it allows people to buy in to the value system, right, and to, to sort of you know, imbibe those values and also put their own values in there and see how things kind of jive and mix. But then doesn't mean everybody's going to magically get along. Uh, It can, I think, help get to that direction. But I think that's that's one of the interesting pieces, just to know that like, uh, it's it's work, right? I mean, that that's why we're talking about this. That it is it's not just a magical solution of like we can do this, but it's kind of taking seriously the ecosystem in which people are are kind of, you know, in which we can co-create, right? And I love the idea of being ruthless about your values. That's a really evocative phrase um and to, to think of it, what does it mean to really not only stick with them but to, to almost fight for them right and to say no we are going to stick by these values and that fair trade either doesn't go as far as we we need it to in terms of practices or there's a regulatory nature to that that actually doesn't jive with our mission because we're actually doing direct trade or something for example mm-hmm. um and so i think that that's really really a powerful way uh to you know and just imagine i mean you know the idea of values, I think, is fundamental. And what does it mean to co-create them? Because I mean, imagine if our politicians were <laughs> would be actually, you know, uh, honest about their values and would would act on them in, in like while also saying what they are. And I mean, it'd be a totally different system, right? But it's, so it's like almost in this way, you know, we could we could ask our political system to look at some organizations that are ruthless about their values and in being expressive about them and sticking to them, and seeing what that looks like in practice.
0: It's, it's funny, I was talking about this, uh, again, on another podcast where I guessed it. And, you know, when companies are making the headlines in the newspapers because of the quality of their employee experience, you know, they're not treating people well. They're, they're not treating the supply chain very well. There's resignations, there's protests, there's whistleblowers, there's employee activism. You know, I was saying that I still view that as an extreme form of co-creation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Just, you, yeah. You've left it a, a little bit too late to engage with people and uh, they're taking it into their own hands and starting to unionize. That's your fault. You know, it, that's your business that's, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, arrived at that outcome. But again, it's still co-creation because you could still recover from that situation if you treat it as such. If you view it as troublemakers, and I was saying this with uh, Francesca from Harvard the other day on the podcast, if you see it as something to cherish and, you know, you can, you can start to really work with people around fixing what's wrong, then it can become a beautiful thing. If you ignore it and continue doing what you're doing, it's going to be an absolute disaster.
1: <laughs> it goes back to your architecture metaphor um, or example. I'm going to turn to a metaphor or social engineering, social design, community oriented design, human centered design, whatever you want to call it. It goes back to intentionality of design for a particular outcome and no matter what if we do nothing that's a choice so if, if you decide you know let's say for take a workplace example from hr that we might talk about if someone makes an off-color joke and you choose to laugh that's an impact right if you choose not to laugh that's another impact those are choices we make and you know if you choose not to laugh and say something about it that's another impact. And so we all are part of you know, agency and structure, sociology terms. We are influenced by the structure in which we live, but we also are participants in constructing it at the same time. So as, as Adam said, interstitial spaces, I like that because it sounds smart. I'll say reflexivity. <laughs> we have this, this, this relationship between the two things, right, where we are both impacted by and author of the environment in which we live. And as a leader in a company or as a person on a team who chooses to be a leader of change, an agent of change, we, want, we need to think with intentionality, with open-mindedness, with empathy, with awareness to decide what kind of environment, what kind of culture, what kind of organization or world we want to live in. And those are the choices people are making right now very vocally across the spectrum. Right. NASCAR just banned the Confederate flag, North American Stock Car Association, Auto Racing Association, whatever it's called. They banned the Confederate flag from their events. Hmm. Right. That's a choice that a lot of their fans may not like. But yet it's the choice that they see it in a larger social context and time that they need to make. And so those kinds of things, those, this is why this is such a seismic moment, because these choices are being made and people are having to be accountable for them.
0: Yeah, it's, it's all very, very fascinating, I would say. And just as an observer watching events unfold and you know, standing back and talking to people and in our coaching groups for our practitioner programs, we have people from heads of diversity roles and an all manner of different professional uh, profiles. And just to see the, the internal dialogue that they have and the way that they've started to overcome some of these challenges, sometimes within themselves, because they have to make decisions that affect many thousands of people. Right. They have to influence their boards and their management teams to do the right thing, whatever the right thing is. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's very, very difficult to understand what is the right thing at this particular moment in time. And you know, sometimes organizations and people will fall foul of, well, actually, <laughs> you've stood on the wrong side of history on this one. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's complicated, it's complex. But I still believe, I mean and listening to what you're saying and expressing here that if we are taking a more human-centered approach you know we're going to get better results within this within whatever circumstances we're we're experiencing because we are naturally listening more maybe emphasizing more with people um rather than sitting back and standing in judgment i mean is that fair comment is is human centricity a big part of the response to this I mean this is would, this could be a final point actually. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say I'll,
1: I will say I'll turn it over to Adam for what he thinks. Don't let your fear of doing the wrong thing stop you from doing the right thing. I think the point mm-hmm. here, being iterative in design, right? In a social design, in organizational design, in creating an employee experience. You listen, you learn, you act, you evaluate, and then you, you know, react, right? Or you re, you listen you listen through that evaluation, you react. You act differently. And that's that process, but it needs to come from a place of authenticity of what you're trying to achieve. It's not just to placate people. I'll listen. We'll pull out the employee engagement survey so people feel like we listen to them.
0: Oh, right. dear, not,
1: dear. Not that.
0: <laughs> not you another know, one.
1: No, I know, right? And then you know, you never hear about what happens, right? You, What happened? I thought we just did this. I don't know. Did they, they, they do anything with it? I don't know. They said they were going to send out a report. Okay. And it's like yeah. banging your head against the wall. It's, you know, this, I, what I authentically want to change things and I want to be an agent of change and I need your help people, whoever you are, the the constituencies in the organization to let me know what your experiences are like and what we can do to make them better. We might not be able to do all things for all people, but at least, you know, I've tried to listen and you'll know why we're making our decisions. And then we'll learn yeah. as we go. So don't let fear of doing the wrong thing stop you from trying to do the right thing.
2: Yeah, and I know? think that that's that's right on. I mean, I I hope that that human centered design is is uh, you know one of the mechanisms that is is one of the reasons that we're doing more. And I, I think I agree because like that that process of <clears throat> that process of listening to the the people that you're designing for or with, and you know in this case obviously hopefully co creating with, uh, and then. You know, one one of the pieces too, you know, from the design thinking side of it, or like the, just the the scale, is that you know the idea of of decision making and and putting something out in the world. You know, they intentionally call it testing it, right? And then there is the iterative word, as you said, Gary, that you test and retest, and you kind of recycle the idea and keep working with it as you get feedback from people. So it isn't one of these you know, we put the idea out and that's the end of it. Like there's an, I do, I do totally understand and here. Like, I think one of the big challenging questions about this is what, how does that look when it's an organization, when a decision will affect thousands of people or hundreds of people um, yeah. is one of the hardest questions. But I do think that listening and co-creation, taking these moments to uh, yes, actively listen and not just say, okay, well, I, could, I took your ideas or, or, or I didn't even listen to you. I just wanted to let you give you lip service by letting you talk, you know, but actually listening to people uh, that would be affected by decisions. Um, if not ultimately co-creating with them, I think is, is fundamental. And I do think that that is one way that we can, uh, you know, see organizations become, you know, not, not necessarily more agile, maybe, but just, you know, but to be, be more responsive to human need. Right. And to be more in line with values of everybody, right. That we can co-create more. Um, Yeah. yeah, But it's, it's a process, you know.
0: (laughs) And this is great. I mean, this is great common sense management. I've got to say, I mean, it's not terribly complex to listen to people. Common sense
2: management. I like that.
0: Yeah. Common sense management. That was in uh, the book that. Employee experience Make, by Van yes, which we... copyright 2019. <laughs> <laughs> you can <laughs> teach it's that on the stuff. MBA that's a good one.
1: I think I'm going to I think what? you know what? I think I'll do that. I think I'll use it. Do I get a back end <laughs> of books? So if I get like, you know, my all my students doing it, do I get like a little taste? Do I get a little piece of that? Like what's what's See, the arrangement
0: the, here? Are we still recording? The funny... the <laughs> <one>? <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, we are. This is a funny this is a funny backstory because the way we met is uh you bought my book and then I you did. sent me a message on LinkedIn I did. to say that the book was the pages were stuck together
1: they were and I'm like they were they were, they were not separated that the cutting machine did not cut all the pages of the book <laughs> were kind of like welded
0: together and <laughs> I had to take a I had to take a, pay, a letter opener and cut them apart wow. yeah so i got this message from gary on linkedin and he, he, he kindly sent a photo of, of the 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 guilty book in question <laughs> And I'm like, well, this is brilliant. You know, to hear from a reader directly to say there's an issue with the production of the books in America, that was brilliant. That was absolutely brilliant. So hmm. the next thing I did was send the picture to the publisher to say we need to fix this because an American colleague has, has got an issue. They got onto the American side of the publishing business and they had the issue corrected, you know, instantaneously, I, I think. Uh, because I think you kindly provided the reference number on the back of the book. So we I could did. identify. I gave you
1: ISBN, yes. Wow. Yeah,
0: you gave me everything, all the data I needed to quickly correct something that was affecting the, the book experience. So <laughs> wow. co-creation, yeah, this is a perfect example. I love that example. There it is. Well, I, I was happy to do it. And it was just a
1: long play to get you on our podcast. And for I knew someday because of that act, I would be on your podcast. So it all came around full circle. It, it all worked out <laughs> yeah. according to plan.
0: But this is beautiful because I think that's where co creation leads to, ultimately, because you do create a better personal connection with people as a result of doing something that is, you know, you had to go out of your way to message me and send photos through. But ultimately, we've created a richer connection, understanding. We've shared two podcasts now and you're, you're using the book for your, your MBA. I've met Adam, who's a fantastic guy. So, you know, you can see on a human level how everything starts to interact and connect. And if you scale that up across organizations, as employee experience practitioners do, well, the benefits are going to be numerous and, and very rich indeed, I think. So, but this, that's a great example to finish on, I think. I think Thanks. so. <laughs> Agreed. Good. I'm glad we agree. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with your agreement that Common sense I. Ended. what I did was started all this off. So you're welcome.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I'm, I'm sure this is going to be the first of many uh, interactions we're going to have in the future. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, great to hear your insights. Uh, Gary and Adam, thank you very yeah, much. Buddy, thanks for having us.